Okay, check, check one more time. We are now podcasting. Checking the mic from my position back here in the seat. All right, these chairs are mildly creaky, but it's probably okay. So, welcome to the podcast against disease. Uh, this is the podcast where we tell you about disease. Um, this is the first episode where we're going to have uh, two hosts, which is what we hope to to be doing from here on out. Um, I am Cody Weston. I'm Kavita Chapla. And we are um, your hosts at this point. And we are both resident physicians at the uh, Johns Hopkins system. However, uh, the views expressed in this podcast are our own and do not necessarily represent uh, anybody else's or the people we work for. So that's, there's that disclaimer. <laughs> um, we also want to point out that this is not only the first episode with uh, two hosts and also kind of the first real episode, this also represents the first episode of the series called How Bad Is It? where we're going to be breaking down what evidence is available on things that are thought of as uh, bad generally in society. And it'll be countered with how good is it, things that are generally considered good in society. And hopefully we'll be able to prove that uh, things are more complicated than that in most cases. Um, the world's got a lot of shades of gray, I suppose. <laughs> um, so, um, this episode is how bad is social media? So, social media is a really huge topic. There's no way we're going to get to every aspect of that in a single podcast. Um, one of the things we're going to focus on in this one is how social media affects uh, mood. Um, one of the concepts that's come up uh, in sort of the broader public is this idea that you shouldn't compare your behind the scenes to other people's highlight reel. Uh, one of the pitfalls of social media is that people are only going to show you what they want you to see and you have to live through all the good and the bad of your own life. So there's a big tendency for you to think that other people are having a better time than they really are. Um, another couple of concepts that have come up, there's this idea of feeling of missing out. Um, no, oh, oh. <laughs> so, Kavita, what role does social media have in your life? You know, I actually, I was, a Facebooker and an Instagrammer and then I recently deactivated my Instagram and am trying to wean myself completely off Facebook so I'm not a big social media user. It's I think it's been positive for my mood but we'll definitely get into a lot of the details and the data pretty soon. But I actually don't know, Cody, what's your social media use? I don't know this. Well, I mean back in my teenage like neckbeard days, I feel like it was, <laughs> it was a mixed bag. I mean, it was, I definitely had a big piece of the, like, feeling missing out mm -hmm. aspect because uh, everybody else seems like they're having more fun when you're, um, when you're not having a good time. Yes. And, um, so I think it was actually a source of negativity more than anything for a, uh, a lot of it. But, uh, as we'll see, I think it is a, um, double-edged sword in a lot of cases. Yeah. Um, and it's been huge in terms of being able to network with 
uh, people. It's helped me with a lot of professional development things, and it's helped me stay sane during periods of like uh, grad school when you don't see anybody for days on end unless you reach out. So I, I think it's it's been good from that perspective. Sounds like it's a little gray, would you say? I think I would. <laughs> All right, let's get into it. What are we going to talk about today? Okay, so um, we're going to talk a little bit about um, social media and mood for the most part. Uh, social media is huge, and we may have to do uh, more episodes if there's uh, interest on some of the other uh, aspects, but one of the big take-home messages is uh, you can't compare uh, your behind-the-scenes to everybody else's highlight reel. Mm. Um, I think, especially from a mood standpoint, it's um, important to recognize that people only show you what they want you to see. Okay, so this is like that concept of how people pretty much just uh, have pictures of them hiking on cliffs and having picnics and looking beautiful, and then there's fewer pictures um, by comparison of the days when you're just in your pajamas eating ice cream and watching TV and doing nothing. Mm. And you're not seeing the uh, sort of middle days is the other big problem. Like, if you see true. somebody's bad times, it's because they want you to see an especially true, bad time. True, um, So I do think it's really important to realize that it's not an accurate representation of, uh, of other people's reality. Uh, and it can be kind of toxic if you lose perspective of that. So true. I mean, I think in today's day and age, it's essentially like a marketing tool. You're presenting an image of yourself that you want to present to an online community, and it's um, it's cultivated, it's curated. It's like your personal museum. Yeah, it's life as performance. Exactly. I, I think people have uh, dug a lot deeper than we have into that idea. But Yeah. Yeah. Um, so shall we get into it? Oh yeah. Um, so we got this uh, concept of e-stress I did want to touch on real quick. Um, yeah, what, what is e-stress? So I think this is going to be something that eventually deserves its own episode, but mm -hmm. my understanding of e-stress is that the very act of constantly being plugged in and checking messages, checking emails, mm -hmm. checking tweets, and just feeling like you are not... Um, up to date with your obligations unless you have uh, constant attention to your phone, it tends to drain on people and that leads to uh, this chronic stress that lays on top of um, everybody else's... Um, no, Other stress? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, that's that's great. I'm glad there's a name for it because I get so stressed out with all of my emails and texts and I'm not one of those good communicators. Yeah, I'm, I'm remembering when I went on a hiking trip um, on the West Coast Trail for like a week. Mm -hmm. um, it was bizarre to sit down, like a computer screen looked so alien after that. <laughs> it was like my eyes couldn't recognize something that close. And it was, it was so bizarre, it's like, oh, this is what I look at pretty much all day, every day, is glowing rectangles. Oh, so gross. <laughs> All right, so the, uh, the evidence we found is actually pretty interesting. And did you want to start with yeah. the... Yeah, yeah. So imagine 1998, 
it's I don't even know what's happening in 1998 because I was probably only seven at the time. I think Pogs were probably still Pogs. I loved Pogs. People are playing with Pogs. The internet is some mysterious thing that most people aren't using. But there's all the first kind of study um, was by this guy Kraut and um, some of his colleagues. It was called the Internet Paradox Study, and. This was 1998, they studied, it was one of the first sources that said that the internet could have a negative effect on social, emotional, mental health. Mm. Uh, which is pretty cool, because that was 20 years ago. Yeah, there was like no internet to study and they were already figuring <laughs> yeah. out that it was terrible. <laughs> That's when you know it's bad. Mm. Um, and then, you know, sort of, where do we go from there? Um, that was just kind of to say that people have been thinking about this for a while, but the main article that we really found and liked was this article by um, O'Keefe and Clark Pearson. They were two researchers um, who made this basically like almost guideline type paper for the the American Academy of Pediatrics, which is like they are the official source of all information for the health of children. Which is really important because um Almost all adults used to be children, so we have to keep those alive, <laughs> typically. Uh, exactly. We're all maybe just large children, or maybe children are just small humans. Um, this article basically provided guidelines for um, inner social media use, and kind of talked about the benefits and harms for children and adolescents, which once again we can apply to everyone, essentially. And the AAP just rocks, so we love them. The first sort of theme that the article touched on was socialization and communication. So the social media actually can help create sort of community engagement opportunities, like, you know, there's so many Facebook posts about we're doing this, you know, clean the beach event, you know, who can join? It's just an open event. That's pretty cool that you can do that versus back in the day it was probably like you put flyers up on random telephone poles and hope people show up. And then it can also help people develop their identities. You can find groups, you can find any kind of um, community of people that you want to be a part of online, which is pretty cool. Um, you know, runners, excavators, spelunkers. Dungeons and Dragons players. Exactly. <laughs> um, so that's great. And then you can also have more access to diverse groups of people. You know, maybe you grow up in a small town in, in central Florida like I did, and everyone, you know, 60% of the population is over the age of 60. If I wanted to interact with some young people, I could just go online. Yeah, and this has been huge, I think, for anybody who's ever felt left out, either because of what they are or what they believe or what identity they um, belong to, um, again, either by just falling into it or by making a conscious choice, um, it helps people find other like-minded people. And I think that's been a very positive force for um, anybody who would have felt more alienated in the past. Totally, totally. Um. There's this study done in 2002 by two researchers, Shaw and Grant, and this was actually a pretty cool study. Um, it's cool to imagine, you know, being a college student at UNC and 
basically being recruited for this study where you get course credit to be a part of the study where you basically just have to chat with people online and then answer questionnaires. So they, they got you know about 40 undergrads at UNC. They assigned them to these different sort of chat pairings. And then they measured, um, you know, they were um, assigned to chat multiple, you know, some frequency that they measured. And then they, they gave them these questionnaires um, to measure their depression, their loneliness, their self-esteem, and their social support. And the results were pretty cool. Um, the internet use um, actually decreased their loneliness and depression significantly, and they perceived that they had greater social support, their self-esteem went up. Um, so that was really cool, just chatting. Chatting yeah. was, the, was the kicker. Yeah, and it was really wild reading through this study. I mean, this is back in like the AIM days, and what <laughs> it looked like is that this was pretty much set up like today's um, Omegle almost where they just had these little logins and it was like anonymous chat user one, <laughs> anonymous chat user two, and you're just like, hey, internet person, what's poppin'? And then everybody felt better um, because of that. I guess that was the thing back in the day, right? Like even with AIM, you could join like these little chat rooms and things. Yeah, I remember when I was, uh, when I was in middle school, uh, some friends and I started this like online role-playing game where we did all this like questing in an AOL chat room, and we got all these random people. That is so cool. <laughs> it's wild. That is awesome. Those were actually like some good days. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So this study is our most positive study that we'll present to you. Um, this, you know, study suggests that the internet has the potential to be very positive. Um, and the one thing that's kind of the caveat with this is that social media isn't necessarily used this way anymore. You know, I can't remember the last time that I've chatted with someone online. I've more just been looking at their pictures or their videos or their status updates. Uh, so this is maybe not as relevant in today's world. Yeah, I mean, to forgive them, social media in its current form didn't exist back then, so yeah. they were kind of speculating, I think, as <laughs> to what it might look like one day. Um, but this is less relevant to sort of what, you, what the effects of looking at your Twitter and finding out that everyone you've ever known has 15 babies and a happy <laughs> marriage. <laughs> oh my gosh, so many babies. So many babies, engagement rings. Wedding photos. Um, not yeah. enough photos of people in pajamas. That's what I say. Well, yeah, and back to the uh, earlier comment, it's always like um, a massive production when anything good happens, and then like unless it's a particularly messy disaster of a like a divorce or a breakup, it's <laughs> like they just quietly oh they're not together anymore. I know it's so sad, and then I'm also like never sure like should I even be knowing about this? Because I haven't talked to this person that I'm Facebook friends with in, you know, over five years. Should I know about their messy divorce? Yeah, I think privacy is definitely a, uh, an evolving phenomenon. Sure. I feel like we have to rely on security by obscurity anymore. Your only <laughs> defense is to be too boring to be worth knowing about. <laughs> um, yeah, so that was our, our first aside article. So, you know, socialization, communication, the first theme that the, um, the AAP article touched on. The next theme that they talked about was 
that social media can provide amazing learning opportunities and health information. You have the you have the entire World Wide Web at your fingertips. So you can access any information you want. You can learn about you know diabetic foot ulcers if you happen to have an uncle who you're worried about you know who might be getting one. Um, you no longer have to go to the library and maybe find a book with, on diabetes in the card catalog and then maybe find a chapter and maybe look in the index. Mm -hmm. um, it's right at your fingertips. Yeah, the bigger problem right now is just making sure that you get valid information, which is again probably its own whole topic. Um, you might have legitimate questions about vaccines and end up on a uh, militant anti-vax website and everything looks perfectly legitimate, but it's definitely not the consensus opinion things like that. Yeah, it's honestly very scary. I feel like when we were younger, the internet had more sort of, I don't know, it was easier to see what was fact and what was fiction. Yeah, I think part of the problem there is just that it's gotten so easy to make a good looking website. Oh um, yeah. Which, you know, hey, sponsors about <laughs> uh, web making or website making stuff, we'll totally we'll take it. Um, Oh, we're all just slaves to good formatting. Yeah. Yeah, back then it was like, what, you could have, you could have a couple of animated GIFs and uh, <laughs> maybe like, like the dan dancing <laughs> hamsters and like a spinning flame. <laughs> Man, I'm getting so nostalgic about the internet of old. <laughs> um, we may just have to do a podcast episode on things like HomestarRunner.com and all those things. Oh my god, Homestar Runner. I know. It was so weird, right? I think they were going to do some new ones actually. Oh my gosh. Um, okay, we're, we're losing track. And our next point, number three in the um, study, is cyberbullying. So, mm -hmm. Cody, can you expand more on that? Yeah, so cyberbullying is interesting. Uh, again, <coughs> bullying is terrible and um, is its own set of issues. But the big issue with cyberbullying is that it takes the... Uh, negative interactions of conventional bullying and it eliminates the boundaries like when I experienced bullying as a kid I could always trust that at least when I hopped off the bus I was pretty much safe I wasn't going to get hassled at home in my bedroom on my computer um, because there was really like nothing there but Starcraft and WordPad <laughs> um, and now it's uh those boundaries don't exist and people can just keep getting prodded and poked and it's uh, it's concerning. Uh, the good news is that the evidence so far suggests that offline harassment is still the more common form, so targeting that is still the more important thing from a societal level. Just being online does not necessarily mean that someone is going to be exposed to more harassment, um, but it's more a matter of if you are already being targeted then they can take it to the nth degree. And that's where the isolation can get even worse, the depression, the anxiety. And people have, on many occasions, been um, harassed to the point where they've completed suicide. Uh, so this is a very serious issue. It freaks me out so much. Yeah, it, it's depressing that there's no safe haven anymore. Um, yeah. The idea of having the phone in my pocket be a source of that kind of angst. I, I don't know how kids these days can get through it, but yeah. it's just something that parents these days and really anybody who gives a shit about children needs to be aware of on some level. Yeah. I, I can't imagine 
raising a child in this environment right now while things are so uncharted or being a kid for that matter. Um, these are a lot of just like new things that have popped up in like the last five to ten years that didn't exist. Yeah, and uh, as we'll get to with some of the other uh, things we talk about, everything is recorded anymore. So the stupid decisions that used to just go away are uh, potentially going to keep coming back to haunt you. That's crazy. Oh, we live in a scary world. There's cameras everywhere. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. Um, that brings us to point number four in this in the article, um, the AAP article, and that is sexting. So the article found that about 20% of teens have sexted, uh, and that you know this is probably not. It's not something that's necessarily new. I'm sure that teens have always been sort of. Um, going through sexual exploration with each other. Um, it just it wasn't in this sort of text message form in the past. And the more sort of uh, angle that they look at this is the legal and social consequences of, you know, if this information gets into the wrong hands or, you know, if it is, um, in, you know, seen by an authority figure, then, you know, those kids may be um, punished in some way. Yeah, and that's where the, the big concern is, I mean... Think what you will about two consenting teenagers of the same age sharing explicit content with each other. The idea of it falling into the wrong hands, you've got um, people who want to see that content uh, who are not of that age, um, and then it goes from being something that is not ideal, but sort of understandable in the context of being a teenager, to something that is now being exploited by uh, sexual predators. So there's just this whole other set of considerations that unfortunately have to be brought up and children and adolescents need to be made aware of sooner than I think any of us would like. Yeah. It's... Oh, I'm just... My heart is heavy with all of this information. <laughs> yeah. It's not great. No. <laughs> Which brings us to point five. Um... Another uplifting topic. Cody, can you tell us about Facebook depression? Facebook depression. Please, please don't sue us, Zuckerberg. <laughs> um, look, it's not specific to Facebook, right? I'm sure if people are still using MySpace, we could get perfectly depressed <laughs> on there. But the idea is, this is kind of what I've been getting at with the um, seeing everybody else being happy and kind of milling it over in your head, ruminating on it. Uh, and just getting more and more bummed out about it. Um, a lot of children and adolescents spend a lot of time on social media sites. They depre get depressed because of this uh, thought process where they're like obsessing about their social hierarchy position, whether or not they're accepted by peers, whether they have m more friends than the uncool kids, all these sorts of things and whether those are the right sort of friends. Um, and this is where a couple of our articles uh, kind of came up. There were uh, two major studies I found that looked into the usage patterns of social media and how those were uh, associated with depression. Uh, this one study is by Lynn and colleagues in 2016. They looked at uh, 1,787 adults between 19 and 32. Ooh, we're between 19 and 32. Mm, Are yeah. we? I'm almost done. 
Um, and they were recruited randomly. They um, looked at how much they were using social media, and they looked at their depression using this um, promise scale, which was associated with some of the more common measures, the BDI, the CESD, the PHQ-9. Uh, you don't need to know these unless you're a, a mood disorders nerd, but suffice <laughs> it to say, these are uh, ways of assessing depression that are pretty widely accepted. Um, what they found was that people who used the most social media had significantly increased odds of depression after controlling for all the other factors compared to the people who use less social media. Um, the average person in this study used about an hour a day. The uh, lowest was about half an hour a day, and the people with the highest risk used two hours or more a day. Um, they also found that all these associations had strong linear dose-dependent trends, which is to say that the more social media you used, the more likely you were to be bummed out. Or, I don't mean to make light of depression, but the more you were uh, to have very low mood. Um, and what they concluded was that more social media use was associated with increased depression. Now, even the authors stated that this is a correlation, not a causation, so it's not clear in this study whether this is people having depression, having low mood, and then using more social media to try and snap themselves out of it, or because they just didn't have the energy to do something else, or whether this was, in fact, driving it. But it's a concerning correlation nonetheless. Um, Definitely. Yeah. I feel like I had low mood due to my Facebook usage this past year. Yeah, it's especially bad when we were interns and we saw the light of day maybe you know, once a month. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's really hard to see other people living real life when you can't. It is, but it's also, I realized, like, and I, I had to just disconnect because that was, you know, that made me feel better, but I was seeing, you know, people going on these fancy vacations, but if you think about it, somebody in the world is taking a vacation every second of every day, mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean we have to see those and then feel bad that we're not taking a vacation because maybe that's their first vacation in a year. And yeah. they totally deserve that vacation. Yeah, I think there's a big bias where we tend to kind of lump everybody else into just being this um, super person who's always having fun and always having yeah. a good time. And it's, it's not constructive. No. <laughs> uh, so the, the other study uh, was by Becker and colleagues. And uh, this one goes a step further. They looked at not just social media use, but this idea of social media multitasking. This one also looked at undergraduate students. There were 319 people, 222 of them were women. Um, and they found that media multitasking was associated with social anxiety and depression, um, even more so than just um, social media use. What's media multitasking? So this is the idea of as I think every college student in history has done, <laughs> kind of um, doing, doing a math problem, checking your uh, social media, or just having your alerts mm. up and um, using social media as a source of half procrastinating and half being uh, productive. Ooh, okay. And what they found here is that the uh, people most likely to have these social anxiety and depression problems had certain personality traits. Now, one of the um, big things in personality psychology and in psychiatry is 
um, these big five personality traits, and the two that came up here were neuroticism, which is the idea of feeling emotions strongly, especially negative emotions, and extroversion, which has sort of a hazy definition depending on who you're talking to. The most commonly accepted definition is sort of whether you're more outgoing and people-oriented mm -hmm. or whether you're more... Um, introverted, of course, mm -hmm. and that you get your energy from solitude and ideas. Um, a related definition is that extroverts are more present-oriented and live in the now, whereas introverts yeah, and introverts are more um, oriented toward the past or future and then tend to kind of chew on those ideas. But um, that tends to get... Oh my gosh, can we do a podcast on personality oh, testing? Sure. Definitely. Oh, and then we can we can tear down the uh, the Myers-Briggs, which everybody loves, but that is like not used in any research context. Anymore. Yes, let's do it, because I'm kind of one of those people, so I need to be educated. <laughs> <laughs> we can talk about it, yeah. Let's do it. More to come. Yeah. All right. So the um, Becker study found that the uh, neuroticism... High neuroticism and high extroversion did predict social anxiety and depression on their own, which makes sense. If you feel negative emotions strongly, you're more likely to worry about what everybody mm -hmm. thinks of you. If you're extroverted and your value system starts to base around oh. you know, whether you're going to have more meaningful, positive social interactions, then you might freak out if everyone's partying without you. Oh, no. FOMO. <laughs> right? So they found that media multitasking itself was not correlated with either of the personality traits, but it's like this environmental factor that layers on top of that and screws with your mood um, in addition to those factors. Uh, again, just like the last study, this is just an association, not a causation. So this could come back to people trying to use the media multitasking to cope, or maybe they're already feeling so bad that they just can't commit to the task they're trying to do and they're using the, the um, media to push themselves through it and kind of reward themselves with just a little hit of uh, something exciting after every couple of paragraphs <laughs> of whatever they don't want to do. But um, it was nice that they looked at the multitasking instead of just the media use. So this gets back to the idea of e-stress. Mm -hmm. um, and a theme that I kind of hope will start coming up more and more in these podcasts is that trying to focus on one task is often a good thing to do for your mental health uh, and distractions, although they might be a good temporary relief, tend to um, end up being more harm than good in the long run. That's true. I guess that's like one of the bases for mindfulness. Yeah. Right? Which oh. we're also going to be talking about. Another podcast. Yep. Oh my gosh. So many exciting things. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I should really be monotasking. Yes. Okay. Um, Okay, so now to get back to, let's see, number six in the O'Keefe and Clark Pearson, the AAP sort of guideline article. Uh, the next thing that social media provides is, um, unfortunately, exposure to targeted advertising. So what does this mean? This means all of that sort of weird, nefarious data collection that happens under the webs. Um, Advertisers can take this information, you know, demographics, interests, age range, and you plug it into algorithms and then um, sort of put very specific targeted advertising towards different um, populations of users, and that can be really dangerous. Um, like if you have a kid who likes to play educational games on the internet and then they are, you know, in the 6 to 12 range and Fruity Pebbles, no offense to Fruity Pebbles or any fruit-based cereal, um, <laughs> 
but if they decide that they want to market to this, you know, to your child playing this game, then they totally could because they have the research and backing to prove that it might be successful. Um, yeah. yeah. When they know how to push their buttons yeah. in a vulnerable population. I mean, yeah. the neurobiology is there and, like, children don't know what's best for them. So it's really important that um, parents and other people who are trying to steer them down the right path are aware that advertising is getting smarter and smarter um, and that that's one of the big caveats of, of social media use and of internet use in general. Totally. I feel like for our age range, I don't know if you get this or maybe if they just have picked up on me, but I feel like I get a lot of advertisement about mid-century modern furniture. Maybe because they know I finally have an income. I don't even know if I like mid-century modern furniture that much, but it, like the internet makes me think that I should like that because everybody's getting only that furniture for their homes. It's I, stressful. I think the internet's figured out that I don't think I've bought a, a furniture. I still don't have a couch. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it's just me. <laughs> um, yeah, so watch out for that, parents. Watch out for that, children. Watch out for that young adults and old adults, um, you are being targeted by advertisements. Um, it's spooky. The next concept, number seven on the list, is uh, age 13 for a reason. So what does that mean? So the AAP, they um, definitely believe in supporting the, the laws in place um, for online use where the age 13 is usually the age at which you have to kind of verify that you're 13 before you can use certain websites or certain features. Um, and the AAP thinks that that's very reasonable given that children before 13 are just not sort of um, developed in the way to, to have access to these certain different services or make decisions, um, you know, that are available to them. Yeah, and they just have a tendency to get into trouble if they're not careful. So the recommendation is just that um, you continue to guide them that if the internet's trying to keep them away, then they should probably find something better to do. Uh, Legos, library, who knows. <laughs> oh my gosh. I, do you remember some of those things though? I feel like, did you ever play Neopets? Oh yeah. I think you had to be 13 to use that website or to like, like buy and trade pets. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a, there is common sense too, right? Like, yeah. um, parents and families know what what they can do, but I think the idea in the article was just um, letting or trying to let children have free reign is dangerous. And so I know, true. I know that people have like a lot of demands on their time already, but this yeah. may end up being something worth putting the time into. Yeah, I agree. Um, so those were like the seven main points from the article and we'll just briefly summarize sort of what the AAP wants you to know uh, when you're thinking about social media and your families and you know your loved ones. Yeah, so one of the major points they had was that if you're somebody who's got children and adolescents in your life, um, especially if you're a parent or uh, an older sibling uh, or an uncle, aunt, whatever, uh, talk to children and adolescents about their uh, online use and the issues outlined here because they may not know that these are things worth thinking about. Um, the other thing that's important is they call it the participation gap. It's really important that if, if you're trying to guide a child or adolescent down the right life path that you think about 
understanding what they're using so that um, you're able to advise them accordingly and not fall too far out of touch. Yeah. Uh, other two things that they re recommend are um, having like a family plan for how you're going to use the internet, um, having meetings, having checks of the privacy settings, you know, that your kids have on their social media accounts, uh, promoting healthy behavior, and um, Cody, you might have to clarify the citizenship uh, yeah, so the concept. Yeah, so the idea, uh, as I read it, was just that instead of focusing on punishing them, you just establish almost like a sense of honor, like this is how you should go about things, and um, you almost try to entrust them with a level of responsibility they can handle and build them up rather than trying to knock mm -hmm. them down when they inevitably do something that's not correct. That makes sense. Just kind of a positive reinforcement approach. That makes sense. I think. Um, and then the last thing that they recommend is they recommend that you just actively participate and communicate with your kids versus doing like sketchy things like net nanny programs or you know those sorts of things where you lurk on your children in yeah. the internet. Um, yeah. I mean, I'll get on my soapbox for this a little bit. I mean, please, when, please do. <laughs> when I was when I was in middle school, I had a friend who had really strict parents, and they were trying their damnedest to get him to do the right thing, but you know they had to go to work and stuff, so he just ended up doing more or less what he uh, wanted. And my parents had the approach that they uh, wanted to know what was going on; they didn't want me to do anything stupid. So we just had more of an open and honest relationship. Mm -hmm. We went to some of the same um, events and things, and he had to lie about them, and I just told them what was going on and that wow. what my strategies were for not doing anything like illegal or bad. And I think that trying to form a partnership with your children, especially if you can titrate it, if you can just give them enough responsibility to not get themselves in big trouble, then you'll have more of a positive um, experience navigating some of these murky waters that we kind of outlined here. Yeah, those gray muddy waters. Mm -hmm. um, that's, you know, kind of, uh, that concludes our talk and then we'll just give you our main talking points. So, social media, how bad is it? As we've seen through our uh, discussion today that it has, social media has great power for both positive and negative effects in people's lives. Um, it can be a source of support, a way to find like-minded individuals, um, and you know, although we didn't go into too much detail, there are, as Cody mentioned, a lot of special benefits for smaller communities. Um, if you're one of the only, um, you know, lesbian or gay kids in your class, but you have an online community that you can find support and sort of information from, then that is super powerful. Yeah. Um, or if you're adopted from uh, a minority group and you're the, the only non-white kid in your school or whatever um, whatever demographic situation you're in, um, it's got to be a way to um, broaden your horizons and see that you're not in the larger scale as alone as you might feel. Absolutely. Um, but as we've shown today, there's always a good and a bad side to everything. So this ability to find smaller communities that jive with you, it can also be very negative. Um, and that could, you know, there's this concept of echo chambers where um, people's critical thinking is stifled because they're only associating with people who agree with them. Um, this is, 
you know, a huge topic that we could also cover on another day, but, you know, just thinking about the recent election, people finding spaces of, you know, of networks of people who agreed completely with what they were saying, I think led to some of the sort of, on both sides, people not really listening. Yeah, and it leads to a complete lack of productive dialogue because um, you end up getting so far uh, off the rails in a particular direction without any like reasonable discourse from countervailing points that uh, I think it, it lends it or it ends up being destructive on all all counts. Totally. Um, so I mean our our advice is that as much as you can um, just be thoughtful about the way you're using the internet and especially with social media think before you ruminate i mean if your social media use is bumming you out making you upset it might be a good idea to cut back a little bit change the way you use it um i don't think trying to be a cyber luddite and (laughs) cut cut yourself completely (laughs) off is always the best move um but overuse from what the literature shows is definitely uh, a risk, especially if you're somebody who's got um, a potential for mood problems and other aspects of your personality, or if you've got a family history or anything like that. Yeah. What's like one takeaway that you're taking away for yourself from everything that we learned today? I think the biggest thing that's going to stick with me is the idea of e-stress and these. Um, the idea that multitasking with it is even worse than just overusing it yeah. uh, and just reinforcing that idea that mindfully pursuing a certain task is um, often the most efficient way to go for your brain. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say the same thing. I think that one really stuck with me because I feel like we also do a lot of multitasking at work and I this has just reminded me that maybe I should just start my, you know, trying to be very mindful about doing one task, finishing it, and then moving on to the next one because it sounds like doing five things at once really isn't productive. Yeah. In our line of work, that's not always easy, yeah. but uh, it's definitely a good goal to aspire to, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was our podcast for today. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope it was useful, and we're so open to feedback or thoughts or comments or questions. Um, we're open to all of it. Mm-hmm. Um, how can you get in touch with us? These are the ways. We have a Twitter, which is um, at Against Disease. That's it, right? That's a Twitter handle? Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it's at Against Disease. You can tweet at us. You can hashtag. We'll make sense of that. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a Facebook. If you just um, go on to Facebook and type in Humanity Against Disease, or no, at... At Humanity Against at Disease. At Humanity Against Disease, you should be able to pull up our page. You can like it and you know, post questions or comments on there as well. You can review our page, I think. Um, And then we have an email. We, Cody and I, would love to receive emails from you guys and answer any questions or, you know, get ideas for new podcasts, so... Yeah, we'll read stuff as long as you don't use too many swears. (laughs) That's so true. We're hoping in the future to have, like, Q&A sessions. Yeah, I mean, the whole point of Humanity Against Disease and the podcast Against Disease is to try and close that gap between people in healthcare and people outside of healthcare because you guys have a lot of things we want to know and we want to help. So let's talk, right? Totally. Let's talk anytime. Uh, You can email us at um, againstdisease at gmail.com. Yeah, and we literally started that account up today. So... (laughs) You might be the first fan mail ever. 
Oh my gosh, we're probably gonna frame our first fan mail ever, so if you wanna be the first fan mail, yeah, well, the opportunity's open. We'll put it on that fancy resume paper and put it on the wall. <laughs> It'll be great. Acid free. <laughs> Scented. Mm -hmm. Scented. Uh, lilac colored. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. So we have a good plan for framing your first fan mail. Mm -hmm. um, and then the last place you can get more information about Humanity Against Disease is our website, mm -hmm. which currently is humanityagainstdisease.com. I don't know why it's not .org. Eventually it probably will be. But I promise we're not trying to make money off of you. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, we had so much fun today. We hope you guys did too. And stay tuned for another podcast. Alright, take care everybody. High five. Damn. That was awesome.